Hello, everyone. Welcome to Homegrown Casey, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Today we are exploring some very difficult history, uh, as I'm sure you guessed from the title of this episode. Therefore, I want to issue a content warning. Um, This will include discussions of the Holocaust, war, genocide, torture, and murder. So, um, March 6th, Sunday, March 6th, I went to a special traveling exhibit that was on display at Union Station. Auschwitz, not that long ago, not that far away. It's taken me several days to write up my notes for this, uh, because every time that I sat down to write, or more often every time I even thought about sitting down to write, I just got so nauseous. The exhibit was much more emotional. Um, It was harder to experience than I predicted it would be. Extremely well-educated, very well put together, Um, but the subject matter is so emotionally and spiritually heavy that I was absolutely exhausted and nauseous afterwards. Thousands have come to see the exhibit so far, which I'm um, I'm very glad of, Uh, and I know that they um, actually extended the exhibits um, stay time and they added more viewing times. Um, Right now the tickets are sold out. So uh, while you can no longer get in to see it, if you haven't yet and you don't have your ticket yet, um, there is a documentary that also kind of goes along with it. That's showing at the union station in the theater there. It's called Auschwitz untold in color. Um, the last day that you can go and see it is March 20th, and I think that's the last day of the exhibit as well. Uh, so tickets to the documentary are $6. And I couldn't find a definitive answer, but I feel like the ones who created the exhibit are also the ones who created or at least helped create the documentary. It features interviews with first-person survivor. Um, let me try that again. <laughs> it features first-person interviews with survivors. Um, and it has colorized Holocaust archival footage, uh, which is what makes this particular documentary so unique. And the survivors were told ahead of time, like, hey, this is what we want to do. Are you okay with it, with colorizing it? And they all unanimously said yes. Uh, so this exhibit began showing in Kansas City in June 2021. And it's closing March 20th. Okay, so yeah, that is the last day. Um it took me so long to go and see it because I kept trying to get friends or family to go with me and uh, we couldn't match up our schedules. And then uh, finally it was the holiday season and I was like, okay, we're going to have extra time off work. We can go see it now. And um, finally they all said, no, Laura, we don't want to go. So uh, in early January, the museum announced that they were very nearly sold out. And I was like, well, crap <laughs> and hurry up and bought my ticket. And uh, the earliest that I could really get in was March. Um, I don't know where else it's going. I believe the next stop is New York. Um, and I don't know if that's the only other stop or not. If you can't get into it, 
uh, to see it, either you know here in Kansas City or New York or wherever else it may end up going, which I couldn't quite fit on information on. Uh, there is a digital exhibit, www.auschwitz, that's A-U-S-C-H-W-I-T-Z, dot Union Station, U-N-I-O-N-S-T-A-T-I-O-N dot org. You can also find extensive information about the exhibit um, at unionstation.org slash event slash Auschwitz. For those of you who don't know what the Holocaust is or what Auschwitz is, or, you know, ninth grade history was so long ago you just forgot, World War One was from 1914 to 1918, and at the end of it, Germany was forced to sign the Treaty of Versailles, which, in the simplest terms, placed all the blame for the war and the financial responsibility for the war on them. As a result, their economy completely tanked. So... Adolf Hitler became the leader of the National Socialist Party, a.k.a. the Nazis. Um, and that was actually in the 20s, so not too long after the war ended. Uh, he was finally elected chancellor, which was uh, basically the German version of president, in 1933. And he immediately began passing laws discriminated against Jews and those of Jewish descent. Even though he was of Jewish descent, which I just find incredibly ironic in the worst possible way. Usually I love irony. Sorry, I'm getting off topic. Um, he forced them to live in ghettos, and then he ordered them moved, uh, rounded up, and forcibly moved across nations to labor camps and concentration camps. And they were being killed throughout all of this. Uh, starvation, disease, exposure. And uh, it wasn't just Jews. It was people from multiple other ethnicities and nationalities, homosexuals, and those with disabilities. And then after several years, he created what he called the Final Solution. It was a systematic mass genocide plan for all of Europe's Jews. Exact numbers are unknown, but it's estimated that Hitler and his Nazi army succeeded in murdering 6 million Jews, 10 million Soviet citizens, nearly 2 million Polish citizens, and another 2 to 3 other million people. So that's a total of 16, 18, 20 to 23 million people. That's what the Holocaust is. And Auschwitz... Uh, is its most famous killing center. It's estimated that one million Jews were murdered at Auschwitz. This exhibit was, quote, conceived by Musilia and the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum and curated by an international panel of experts, including world-renowned scholars Dr. Robert Jan van Pelt, Dr. Michael Berenbaum, and Paul Salmons, um, that may be Salmon's, sorry. In an unprecedented collaboration with historians and curators at the Research Center at the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum, led by, I'm probably going to butcher his last name, so we're going to skip it, and we're going to call him Dr. Piotr. The exhibit explores the dual identity of the camp as a physical location, 
the largest documented mass murder site in human history, and as a symbol of the borderless manifestation of hatred and human barbarity. This groundbreaking expedition, uh, exhibition, sorry, groundbreaking exhibition, oh, I almost had it, exhibition, brings together more than 700 original objects and 400 photographs from over 20 institutions and museums around the world. The exhibit features artifacts and materials never before seen in North America, on loan from more than 20 institutions and private collections around the world. In addition to the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum and the Museum of German Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust, participating institutions include Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, the Auschwitz Jewish Center in... Okay, so this is the Polish spelling for Auschwitz, and... Because I've never heard it said before, actually, I'll take the back out. They did use this uh, particular spelling in the exhibit, but uh, it's been long enough that I don't remember how to say it now. So there you go. Um, the Memorial and Museum Schaschenhausen in Oranenburg, and I'm sorry if I said that wrong, and the Weiner Library for the Study of the Holocaust and Genocide in London. Auschwitz, not long ago, not far away, is the most comprehensive exhibition dedicated to the history of Auschwitz and its role in the Holocaust ever presented in North America, and an unparalleled opportunity to confront the singular face of human evil, one that arose not long ago and not far away. End quote. It's mostly panels. Uh, there are a lot of photographs. But there were surprisingly very few actual artifacts. But this was, I think, a very deliberate decision. Uh, the artifacts that were chosen were obviously chosen very carefully. And the manner in which they were displayed, I think, was done for maximum impact on the viewer. And I think that they were more impactful for being so few in number. One of the first artifacts you encounter is a small stretch of the barbed wire electric fence from the camp itself. For reasons I have yet to unpack and really understand, that is one of the ones that has stuck with me the strongest. There's also an optional audio component. Um, it's about, I think, two-thirds of about 50-ish audio segments are narration um, explaining an event or describing the artifacts on display. But the other third are actually testimonies from survivors who were interviewed uh, based on clothing because the audio matches a video screen on the wall. I think they were interviewed in the 1980s. Many of the testimonies were in English, um, but several of them were also in German or perhaps Polish. Um, and there was no translation. The screen would just have the captions in English at the bottom. So no matter what, you were hearing their voice. And um, this was definitely the most impactful to me. Um, there's, there's nothing like firsthand testimony to really just drive home an exhibit or... Yeah, any story or lesson. 
to sin by silence makes cowards of men. Um, to be honest, I don't know who originally said that. It's attributed to several people. But it's become one of my favorite quotes, and it's something I'm striving to incorporate more into my personal life. I don't want to sin by silence. If there's injustice, I really want to be brave enough to stand up and say something to fight against that injustice. And that's part of why I attended this exhibit. I felt that I had a, a moral obligation to see it. I think that everyone actually has a moral obligation, a moral burden to visit these memorial sites, the Holocaust museums around the world, this exhibit, to learn this history and pay witness to these horrors and the suffering that all these people suffered, well, underwent all these uh, not so many years later. That way that we can stand watch and be prepared to prevent something like this from ever occurring again. I'm sure you all are aware of the situation in Ukraine right now. About two weeks ago, Putin ordered Russian troops to invade on a trumped-up excuse. Different theories as to what will happen are going around, but a lot of folks are warning that this could be a precursor to another world war. I really wanted to dismiss that at first, but I kind of think they're right. World War II happened because... Oh, sorry, World War One. <laughs> world War One happened because two countries went to war, and they had defense treaties with other countries who then joined in the war, and it grew from there. And that was the uh, one of the lead causes for World War II. So right now it's just Russia and Germany, um, correction, Russia and Ukraine. But the U.S., then like most of Europe, are uh, part of NATO, which contains a self-defense clause. So I don't think, I mean, I truly hope that no one from NATO just decides to jump in and start fighting. Uh, but if something like that does happen, or if Putin, who's a suspicious war dick bastard, decides that we're going to move in, or he feels threatened or something, and he attacks a NATO country, then that's it. We're all at war. I really hope a diplomatic solution can be found. But um, where I'm actually trying to go with all of this is that uh, this invasion has created a massive humanitarian crisis in Ukraine with almost 2 million people, and uh, that's about as many people as live in Kansas City. I think we're at 2.1 or something like that. Uh, there's almost 2 million people that have fled the country so far into Poland and then on into other European countries. Poland has been so great about welcoming them. I'm so happy to see that. But uh, in addition to hearing warnings about World War III, I'm also hearing that this is the largest, fastest um, migration of refugees in Europe since World War II, which is why I have brought it up. Because, you know, it's just, it's made me think about um, potential comparisons. In the 1930s, you know, it was really obvious where Nazism was headed. And thousands and thousands of Jews and people of Jewish descent fled or attempted to flee Germany and uh, surrounding countries, especially Germany in the beginning. And then Germany annexed Austria in 38 and, you know, thousands more trying to flee, run for their lives. I don't know the details on immigration policies in other European countries at the time, but 
Um, I did look up what American, North America, uh, United States of America immigration policies were. The Holocaust Encyclopedia website by the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum had that information. Um, and this was a great website, so I will have more information on that at the end. Um, did you know that we didn't actually have an immigration law until like the 1880s? Basically a hundred years of uh, North America, United States history without them. Um, anyway, in, in 1924, Congress passed a new immigration law that um, it recorded immigration based on, quote, national origin. Um, and, you know, the idea of nationality and ethnic origin is, it's a huge thing worldwide at this time. And the exhibit had some panels that talked about it and about the rise of nationalism in the early 1900s and the role of eugenics. Uh, which is the study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of uh, heritable characteristics regarded as desirable. Uh, it was developed largely by Sir Francis Galton as a method of uh, improving the human race. Um, eugenics was increasingly discredited as unscientific and racially biased, um, which is... 100% accurate. It is incredibly unscientific and incredibly racially biased. Um, but, um, it, you know, it it's not just our modern understanding. Like, before, in the early 1900s, it was being discredited. Um, and then especially after the Nazis adopted it, they're like, okay, you know, we're done. This is bad. Um, but this, uh, this 1924 immigration law, so it not only limited the number of people who could come because it, it put a cap on um like you're from poland you're polish you know we only allow so many polish you're from russia you're russian we're only allowed so many russians so in addition to creating a cap based on these new national origins that are being decided it also creates an extremely complicated visa process the majority of American citizens opposed immigration at the time because they were afraid that, you know, all the jobs would be taken. Hmm. Rhetoric has not changed much in a hundred years. Um, but there was no law or policy regarding refugees, right? It was like, okay, you know, you're all the same. And then we hit the depression and jobs are gone and money's gone. So fear of immigration just skyrocketed. Basically, America then is nothing like Poland today. We did not openly welcome Jewish refugees in the 1930s. And all of this comparison to the refugee crisis then and our current refugee crisis, you know, it's led me to think about other humanitarian crises and mass migrations. Like, the nearly yearly set of mass migrations of South Americans, um, folks from El Salvador and Nicaragua, they're seeking refuge and sanctuary from extreme violence, but they get turned away by other countries, particularly the U.S., or they get arrested when they come to the U.S. Uh, it made me think of the over one million people who attempted to flee war in the Middle East uh, just in the you know, 2010s 
especially from the Syrian civil war in 2015. They were trying to flee into Europe and they were turned away or, you know, hundreds of them died trying to cross the Mediterranean because their boats capsized. And, you know, I, now I'm like, so where were the calls for the violence to end then in Syria, in South America? Where were the worldwide sanctions and massive corporations pulling out of Syria to make known their disapproval of the war crimes that were taking place because there was some seriously bad stuff going on then? Where were the welcoming hands saying, yes, you can come, you can live here and be safe? I remember that there were some, there were some, but there wasn't enough. Not like what we're seeing now with Russia and Ukraine. Or... What about the ongoing Rohingyan genocide in Malaysia? You know, I can speculate for days about why Ukraine is receiving all the support they are as opposed to these other countries. But what I hope that we're actually getting from this is that we are seeing a change. And we're going to apply that to other situations. You know, I hope that from now on we seek to emulate what Poland is currently doing. No better, do better. That needs to be our motto. I am happy to report that Kansas City has opened its doors to several thousand refugees over the years. And there are some amazing programs and nonprofits out there in our city that are helping them. Y'all are amazing. I hope that you, you can keep doing what you're doing for a long time. I hope that we will open our doors and accept more refugees in the future. And while you support Ukrainian Ukrainians, please remember that the Russian invasion does not give you permission to be a jerk to Russians and Russian Americans. Many of them also do not support Putin. In fact, several thousand, um, I mean, uh, confirmed at least 1,000 people in Russia have been arrested for protesting the invasion. The government has full control over the media and over social media and the internet. And they have completely shut down all mention of this invasion, especially if uh, someone calls it a war. So a lot of them don't even know what's going on if they live in Russia. If you want to help the Ukrainian people, I recommend looking up the Ukrainian Club of Kansas City. I'll have a link to their Facebook page on my website. They have several suggestions on good, legit places to donate to help. They're also creating hygiene kits to send to Ukraine, and you can volunteer and help assemble them. Hashtag stand with Ukraine. And if you want to help the Rohingya refugees that I mentioned a minute ago, look it up on charitynavigator.org. I'll also have a link to that page on my website. It will take me a few days to get that page put together, but my goal is to get it a base out. If you went to this exhibit, I hope that it impacted you as much as it did me, and I hope that it spurs you on to fight injustice as well. That's all I'm going to say on the subject. Thank you for joining me today. You can like and follow Homegrown KC on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, and Tumblr. I also have a YouTube channel. Uh, if you want to leave a rating and or review, you can do that on Facebook, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can visit my website for additional information. That's homegrownkc.wordpress.com, and you can sign up for my newsletter there. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com or DM me on any of the social media networks.
Thank you goes out to my very talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the dear missus for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music of the show. And to local libraries, which enabled me to gather my research. Thank you for listening. seem to shake this feeling and I can't seem to get you off my mind